This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. We open season three by chatting with Dr. Emerson Keenan, one of the co-founders of Cali Healthcare. Cali Healthcare is out to transform the way we monitor pregnancy, an app subject as Emerson and I have been working to tee up this conversation for about nine months. We chat about the poor and complex current state of pregnancy monitoring, how risky pregnancy could be, Emerson's PhD research that led to Cali, the challenges of translating research into commercial opportunities, before wrapping up with a vision to create better human connections. Please enjoy my discussion with Dr. Emerson Keenan. Today on the show, we welcome Emerson Keenan, one of the co-founders of Cali Healthcare. Cali Healthcare is out to transform the way we monitor pregnancy. Quite an apt topic for today because we've tried to tee this conversation up for about nine months now, Emerson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sean, and thanks so much for the patience. That is perfectly okay. Emerson, for our listeners who have not had the pleasure of meeting you, how would you describe yourself and what you're trying to do with Kali Healthcare? My name's Emerson, and I'm an electrical engineer focused on developing technologies that can transform the way we monitor pregnancy. Excellent. Okay, we are glad to have you on board as we kick off season three of the Promise podcast. Let's firstly talk about pregnancy monitoring, because it's a space that depending on your life experience, you might have significant experience with, or in my case, none at all. So I'd love for you to enlighten me over the course of a full term pregnancy, what kind of pregnancy monitoring tasks could someone like myself expect to encounter? Yeah, so pregnancy monitoring is a really, really large space. And so it, it really begins with that first step of confirming you're actually pregnant. You know, a lot of people would, would know this is that stick that you, you pee on, you get two lines or a little plus sign and you know you're pregnant. So that's where the journey kind of begins. And from there, depending on circumstances, you might go and get a blood test and that might measure a hormone in your body called HCG. And so that's kind of the first steps to say, okay, you're actually pregnant, then you know you need to set up a plan with your doctor to find out what's next. And so normally it's followed up by an ultrasound scan, usually before 12 weeks of pregnancy to confirm the due date and make sure there's a fetal heartbeat present. From there, there's a really large number of branching points that can happen. So if everything's okay with the pregnancy and going well, you might have regular check-ins just to make sure the baby's growing all right, blood tests for things like gestational diabetes. And really, if it goes smoothly, it should all then progress to your labor around 40 weeks. But in some of these other scenarios, if you have something detected that's wrong with the baby, you might need more regular monitoring and they might actually bring you into hospital. And so in certain cases where we're trying to then look at that acute well-being of mother and baby, we usually use a machine called a cardiotocograph, which looks at the heart rate pattern of both the mum and her baby alongside any uterine contractions. And so that's really where I've been focusing a lot of my research and time. Right. Okay. We'll dig into your research in a little bit because I think some of it can be pretty fascinating. I'd love to look at what happens if pregnancy progress is not tracked at all. So if we start from the start where somebody finds out that they're pregnant and they do nothing until they actually give birth, what kinds of things could go wrong there? It's really heartbreaking, but in Australia, tragically, one in every 130 pregnancies will end in stillbirth, which is around six Australian families every day. 
And so to put this in context, you know, that, that last trimester of pregnancy is actually one of the riskiest times in that baby's life. Those levels of mortality that you see in that last trimester, you don't see them again until beyond 80 years of age. So if you're not getting that regular to monitoring, we might miss those critical junctions where we could detect a problem with the baby and actually make an intervention to save that baby's life. Regular monitoring is one thing, but obviously there's going to be question marks around access to this regular monitoring. So who would be most at risk from poor monitoring or lack of access to monitoring? That's a really big problem is that currently the systems that we need to have this cardiotography done, it's a really hospital-centric system. So women having to come into a hospital setting, normally a larger tertiary center to get this readily available, having to wait for potentially hours to get a bed, then they might need to wait for hours on end to actually have the monitoring done. And this can happen up to several times a week in some of those really high-risk pregnancies. It's a really inconvenient process. So particularly for women who don't live near one of these hospitals and in that remote setting, it's really difficult. They might have to drive three or four hours to find a hospital. It's just, you know, in some circumstances, it's just not possible for women to make that trip and they're missing out on the ability to have that regular monitoring performed. Right. Fantastic. Okay. So we have a pretty clear understanding of some of the issues that currently are abound in the pregnancy monitoring space. Now, it sounds like you've obviously done a whole bunch of research here and let's learn a little bit more about yourself, Emerson, and how you came to focus on this space. Like previous guest, Cameron Higgins, you've got a background in engineering and then headed into this research space. So what prompted that journey from start to finish, if you could give us a quick rundown? So I began my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. And at the end of that degree, I had to do like a, an honors thesis. And so for my honors thesis, I did a biomedical focused project and I really, really enjoyed it. I love the application of those engineering skills to helping human lives. From that kind of gave me the seed that I was really interested in this space. And so at first, I spent a few years in industry working in wearable devices and IoT and that kind of thing. Over time, I realized I wanted to find an area that I was really passionate about and thought could make a big difference in the world. So I started looking at applying for PhD programs and found at the University of Melbourne a group that was doing research into wearable devices for pregnancy. And so that's where my journey began. I started my PhD in 2017 with this idea of working on a technology that could improve this kind of monitoring, not needing to go into a hospital setting. And so it was really an interesting field for me to begin exploring. Excellent. And let's dive into some of that research that you've done here. So you've mentioned to me some really interesting simulations that you conducted as part of your research. Can you tell us more about that and your PhD journey in general? Yeah, so my PhD journey began looking at these simulations of fetal electrical activity. So I knew that the heart rate was a really important characteristic we wanted to monitor. And I was looking at other technologies besides the current ultrasound that they use in the hospital setting. The big problem with ultrasound is that it requires a clinician to be physically present to move the ultrasound transducer over the baby's heart so they can actually send a little sound wave into the abdomen that then reflects off the baby's heart rate and then they can measure the heart rate of the baby. But it really is a physically intensive process. So I started looking at these other monitoring methods and looked at electrical activity as possibly an adjunct. The real advantage of electrical activity is that you can put sensors over the abdomen and then you can pick up the heart rate from the best sensor. You don't actually need to place it in a very particular position. It allows us to then think about providing monitoring outside of the hospital setting or somewhere where a clinician doesn't need to be physically present. So there's no training per se to know exactly where you need to put the sensor. But one of the big challenges is that people have known about this fetal electrical activity for many, many years. The first studies into this were in the early 1900s. A guy named Kremer, very, very soon after they invented the adult ECG, 
thought, oh, I'd like to try and see if this works for fetal. And so they put little electrodes on the abdomen and saw they could measure these signals. But the problem was it's very, very challenging to get them reliably and repeatably. And so the focus of my early research was developing a simulation so that we could work out where are the best places to put these sensors so that we can reliably get that fetal heart rate from these electrical signals. The challenge with this is that there's many, many ways that the baby can be oriented in the abdomen. Women are totally different body shapes and sizes. So that was you know, the really core focus of my PhD was beginning to look into these simulations and coming up with a strategy to work out the best place to put the sensors. Fantastic. It's interesting that you've gone in this direction as firstly someone with an engineering background to then dive into this clinical setting. How did you go about testing out this technology that you were looking at considering where you started from? So that was part one of the question. And the second part is what kind of clinical feedback did you get and evidence did you gather along the way for you to go, all right, this actually has some legs? Once we'd been able to work out where the best place to put those sensors is, obviously then we needed clinical evidence to show that actually might lead to some benefits. So we're very lucky that um, we've got a clinical partner in Associate Professor Fiona Brownfoot who works from the Mercy Hospital for Women. We began by placing electrodes on women who were consenting to take part in this study alongside their current monitoring they do in the hospital. And so by placing these sensors and comparing against that existing clinical gold standard, we could then work out where the best sensor locations were that matched up against the heart rate we were getting with existing technology. We we conducted many studies looking at different abdominal sizes, how women change throughout gestation to find out the best sensor location, but also one that would work across women across gestations. And so over the last few years, we've collected clinical evidence from, I would say, almost 200, 250 participants in our studies. In these studies, we've shown that in an early development cohort where we're developing this sensor placement and algorithm for extraction, we achieved over 95% agreement with that clinical gold standard. And then in a subsequent validation cohort, we achieved over 90% agreement. So really strong evidence that our technology is providing the same clinical data that these existing systems are, but without needing to move those sensors around and being able to use it outside of the hospital setting. Wow, fantastic. That level of accuracy with the research is pretty astounding. But I think it's one thing to have this fantastic body of research with a high level of accuracy and another thing to then take that into founding a company. How did you and your co-founders decide to then start Cali off of the back of this? And were there any aha moments along the way? What kinds of opportunities did you see when you made that decision? It's a really interesting journey, making that leap from from research to commercialization. And you need to start framing the problem in a different context. You begin in this research field from the problem that patients and clinicians might be focusing on but in order to actually make something that works in a clinic, clinical and a commercial setting, you also need a business model. So we then started working through various programs to work out what the business model behind this system would be. And so we got to a point where we realized there was an attractive business model that we could fit around this product. And so in 2020, my co-founders and I decided to spin out Carly and begin that journey to try and raise funding and develop a commercial product. Off the air, you alluded to some push-pull of academic research. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more. It's a really good point that in research, we're very focused on these narrow issues. So, you know, in in my simulations, I was so focused on this sensor placement, optimizing where that best sensor placement would be. But often this doesn't take into account all the commercial concerns that might come into play. When I'm saying, what's the optimal number of sensors? I never need to think about how do I manufacture that sensor patch? 
if I'm increasing the number of sensors that increase the cost of the patch, what's the reimbursement available for this kind of monitoring? I think it's really interesting to consider if you're working on this edge of something where you're taking your research idea and you're working particularly with the aim of commercialization to think about how it fits into a business model. And so I think the earlier you start thinking about your research as also having some commercial constraint, it will help guide your research into a way that's more translatable. So I'd encourage all researchers who are at this interface to think about the business constraints as well in setting up their research studies. Excellent. Pro tip for any researchers who are listening into this episode. Okay, let's talk about the Kali product itself. Now, you've mentioned that it is a patch that could be worn with multiple electrodes. You mentioned that it could be done independent of a medical professional. Is that right? That's correct. How would somebody actually apply it themselves? So the idea is that while the device could be applied by someone at home or in a remote setting, it would always be guided by a clinician. While they're putting them on themselves, there's a clinician watching that data that's coming off it to make a clinical judgment. The product would always be used under recommendation of a clinician. So there would need to be some risk factor or concern that the clinician had to say that you were needing this monitoring done. It wouldn't be something you'd be going and buying off the shelf. It's a thing that's only indicated for a particular clinical purpose. Okay, so in that case, the customers of this product, well, they're slightly different from the actual end user, right? So if I hear what you're saying right, the customers would be the clinics or hospitals themselves as opposed to a pregnant person? That's correct. And it's a very interesting part of healthcare in that you have multiple customers in your process. While Carly would be selling directly to the clinician or the hospital, they are actually then passing that on to the end user, which is the pregnant woman herself. And so it's kind of this this flow of, of payment and service between the pregnant woman and her clinician. They would be paying a fee to their clinician or they might be accessing a Medicare reimbursement. There's kind of that two-way flow there. And then there's also the flow between the clinician and Carly where they're getting the device and sensor patches supplied to them. So while we directly sell to the clinician, we need to consider all those stakeholders. It needs to work for both clinician and end user themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Now, you obviously have some pretty good inroads with your research partners in terms of getting it into a hospital setting. How do you actually plan on marketing and distributing to other hospitals? It's a really good point that across regions, there are different ways that hospitals like to operate. We're currently working on identifying the right distributors across our markets to work with the distributors that our hospitals like to work with. So typically, a hospital would have an arrangement where they then supply their goods through a particular distributor. Again, it's adding another a link in that chain. We might work with the distributor who works with the hospital who then supplies it to the end user themselves. For hospital settings, probably looking at distributors, but also considering for the smaller private clinics, a director clinician model. So if you're you know, a small private clinic that might just have a few clinicians, you could then buy it directly from Carly Healthcare ourselves. Now, taking all of that into account alongside better access to pregnancy monitoring, if you were to distill the ultimate value proposition of Cali Healthcare versus existing methods of pregnancy monitoring. How would you summarize all of that up? The value proposition, I think, is is multiple. Firstly, for the clinicians, we're improving their workflow. We're allowing to provide a service to their patients that's much, much better than existing clinical standards. So they're able to provide it in settings where it just currently is available. So for those clinicians, it's improving workflow and improving the way they provide their services. Secondly, for the women themselves, it's a comfort and convenience aspects. These current systems are really uncomfortable and time-consuming. As I was saying, some of these scenarios, women are spending hours and hours in hospitals. So that ability to free the burden off of them 
is humongous. You know, it's, it's, it's freeing up all of that time to allow them to be able to focus on their pregnancy and not focus on being in a hospital. And then really the third piece is that interaction. So currently these clinical systems, the clinician is so focused on the technology and making sure it works and making sure it's in the right position, they're losing that interaction. So we hope that it will also open up that ability for the clinician to be with their patient and not focusing on the technology itself. Fantastic. I am always in support of things that build better human connections. Okay, let's pivot the questioning a little bit. So you've now gone full-time into Cali Healthcare. How have you found that process of transitioning from academia and research land into running a startup and startup land? There are, there are so, so many things involved in running a startup. I think doing a PhD is a good prep for running a startup because there are many, many unknowns to deal with and you're always trying to make something work that's never been done before. So I think that's a really good preparation. But I think it's really important to be over the business side of things as soon as possible, as much as possible. I've been very lucky that I've had a lot of mentors along the way. So speaking with other people who've run medtech startups in the past, and I think a really important thing is to be across regulations as soon as possible. I think it's, it's very easy to see the, the regulatory process as a series of hoops that needs to be met and you know jump through, but it should be seen as something that's to strengthen your product and make it the best product possible for your end users. I think framing it in that context and in very early engaging with the regulatory process and saying, how am I going to get what I think is a really great solution through this regulatory process and use that process to shape it and make it a better product. I think that way of looking at things has been really helpful. I would encourage anyone out there who's considering you know, their own startup to just start engaging with the business side of things, go to workshops. And I think Australia has some really, really great programs out there. Everything from the Ant Health Masterclass series, which is fantastic. We did that last year and I found it really helpful. And there's lots of other small and non-dilutive schemes such as the MDPP program over in South Australia. I think there's a really great ecosystem of support out there to help you learn these things before you even make that leap. Fantastic. Now, there is quite a few nuggets of wisdom there for other medtech founders and practitioners. Do you have any other last bits of advice for your fellow medtech professionals? I've touched on this a little bit earlier. The main thing I would say is consider all those stakeholders in the ecosystem. As I was saying, speaking in that market where we're saying if we're going to a hospital, you might have to deal with the distributor. The distributor then has to deal with the hospital. The hospital then has to deal with their end users, which is the pregnant women themselves. Considering everyone in your value chain and making sure they're all getting something out of it. It's very easy to think about just the end user and say, well, they're going to get such a huge benefit out of this. It's just going to sell off the shelf. But unfortunately, unless everyone in the chain is getting a benefit, it won't make it to that end user. So I think being really careful to identify all those steps in the process and speak to these just reach out i think you've got to hustle a bit and talk to these people and find out what are their needs what what are they missing what do they want in these systems getting that information up front as soon as possible to then guide how you actually develop your products really really important and as i said before regulations just knowing the regulations and spending a lot of time understanding how you would get your product to market is really really important and it needs to concurrent with when you're actually thinking of even your business model because the way you get it to market will be very informed by what the regulations say you can and can't do around that product itself. Exactly. And as we were talking about off air, it's a lot harder to pivot in this field than than it would be otherwise. Now that you've spoken through where Kali currently is and where you are in your journey, I'd love to hear what you think your next steps for Kali would be. 
So the next things we're planning on doing is we've just finished our pre-seed round. So we closed that very recently, which is really exciting. And that's enabled us now to continue our product development and work towards our regulatory clinical trial. Over the next 12 months, we're building out our product, which will take the clinical trial, which is really exciting. Um, and then from there, running that clinical trial and submitting that evidence to the regulators. A lot of steps along that journey still, but making really great progress to be able to get this out to the patients who are in most need. And I think along that journey, just always, as I said, engaging with everyone along the way, we always want to hear from women, their partners, clinicians, the hospitals, distributors. I think anyone out there who's involved in the process, we're always wanting to take their feedback on board. Excellent. Always in support of that. So along this journey of product development and getting regulatory approval, do you think there are any dream organizations that you want to partner with in order to help you achieve your goals? I think the thing we'd really love to reach out to at the moment is other researchers working in the space and seeing how they can use our product to work towards new applications of this technology. As I said, the current way we're approaching things is to then show equivalence to these current systems, improving the access and convenience of our system. But we think beyond that, then there's a lot of potential to help identify new issues that currently can't be done with existing technology. And we actually published a study about a year and a half ago now showing that this ECG-based technology can accurately identify fetal arrhythmias, being able to then pick up some of these disease states that we're missing with current technology. So I think any other research organizations out there who are hearing this and thinking, oh, I've got a great idea. If, you know, if I could measure this outside of the hospital setting, reach out to us. We'd love to partner with you and work on a research study. Fantastic. All right. Now, in this journey of product development, are you certain that yourself and your co-founders are all the skills that you have necessary? Are you looking to grow the team in any way? I think for the next 12 months, we're quite set. We've got a really great team around us to do the product development and plan for this regulatory trial. But beyond that, definitely, when we begin to scale operations and head to market and begin to set up a manufacturing pipeline, we're going to need to grow the team a lot. If you're hearing out there and you've got skills in this field, please reach out because very soon I think we'll be making that call. I think anyone who's got experience in medtech manufacturing, go to market, sales, definitely those kind of skills we'll be looking to build within the team. Fantastic. So if anybody's paying attention, stay tuned to where Kali Healthcare might be in about 12 months or so. All right. Now, if we were to scan forward in time past your regulatory hurdles and looking into the far future, if everything goes right for yourself, Emerson, and for Kali Healthcare, what do you think the world will look like? I see a future where technology gets out of the way, where pregnancy monitoring is not a burden on women or a burden on clinicians. And it's actually something that allows them to feel more connected to their pregnancy. So I hope that our technology can help bring about that vision so that it's something that, you know, it's not, not an anxiety or a stress, that it's actually helping them feel more connected. Wonderful. What do you think you personally need to do to get towards that vision? Yeah, I've touched on this. And I think the key thing is just keep talking to people, talking to everyone involved in that chain and really understanding the needs of everyone involved. And I've tried to do that throughout my research career. You know, along these research studies, I've spent many, many hours in the fetal monitoring units and the birth suites, talking to women, talking to clinicians, understanding their pain points. I think I just need to keep doing that, keep talking to the people involved in the process. And if we keep taking their feedback on board, and feeding that back into the engineering process to make a product that delivers these aims, I think really that's the best we can do. A product that delivers. I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. I didn't even <laughs> realize. Very good. <laughs> All right. Emerson, thank you so much for finally stopping by the Promise podcast. It was wonderful to have you on the show finally. And the last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any 
social media or contact info in case anybody would like to reach out, get in touch, share some feedback with their experiences, or perhaps partner up in the not too distant future. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah, if anyone's looking to reach out, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Just look up Emerson Keenan or via our website, www.carlyhealthcare.com. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. No problem. I'll stick all of those links in the show notes. Emerson, thank you once again. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.